I invite you to take your Bibles, and we're going to read two passages from Scripture. First, we're going to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. Luke Luke 18, beginning of verse 9. And Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So far from the Gospel of Luke, I invite you also to turn to Romans chapter 3. So far in the the letter to the Romans, Paul has shown that no one is without excuse. In chapter 1, everyone can see God's judgment. And also in chapter 2, it's not just Gentiles, but also Jews who fall under the judgment of God. We start reading in chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are we, that's the Jews, any better than they, Gentiles? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have become together unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of lips is asped is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness 
because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. And therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who would justify the, uns- the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So far the word of the Lord. Well, this afternoon, our catechism lesson is going to be from Lord's Day 23. I invite you to turn there. Lord's Day 23, you'll find that on page 537 of your books of praise. In our afternoon services here at Owen Sound, we've been doing a, looking at what we believe. We've been doing a, going through the Apostles' Creed, the articles of our faith. And we started this series way back at the start of summer, actually on my first Uh, Sunday here when we studied Lord's Day 7. And if you were here then, maybe you remember that we we talked about what faith is. And we used the analogy of holding on to an anchor during a storm, a terrible storm. Because of our sin, we were destined for a terrible shipwreck. But Christ is like an anchor. By holding on to him, we're eternally secure. We know that he will save us from the storm, and we are confident that he is a secure anchor. And we also saw that to grow in faith We need to better understand the content of our faith. We need to know the anchor better. We need to know that we are secure in him. Our faith grows as our understanding of Jesus progressively conforms to reality. So as we understand who he is, then our faith grows. And so today, as we finish this series, I want to go back to that analogy. We're going to go full circle, and we're going to see that we need to hold on to Christ, our anchor, our righteousness before God in the Catechism of Lord's Day 23, it asks us, what, do you, what does it help you now that you believe all this? And the all this refers to the Apostles' Creeds, everything we've been talking about in the afternoon services, what we believe about God, our Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the, Holy, the Church, life everlasting. Now that we believe all these things, what does it help? And the answer, let's read the Catechism together. In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. 
Although my conscience accuses me that I had grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. So in Lord's Day 23, the Catechism goes right to the heart of the gospel. How are you righteous before God? In fact, John Calvin says that this is the main hinge on which religion turns. See, here we see clearly the grace of God by restoring us to himself. The amazing grace of the gospel that by believing in Jesus, we are made right with God. It's here that we see just how secure our anchor is. And I pray that we'll all see that this afternoon. Because although we justly stand accused, Christ is our sure and steady anchor. And so this afternoon we're going to look at Lord's Day 23 with this title, Anchor Your Faith in Christ, Your Righteousness. Anchor Your Faith in Christ, Your Righteousness. First we'll see, I was drowning in my righteousness. Because in order to see the brightness of the gospel message, we first need to see the darkness of sin. To taste the hope of faith, we need to first realize that just how hopeless our fallen condition is. It's then that the gospel will become sweet to us. So we need to start off by talking about sin. Maybe it's not a popular topic. But the Catechism asks, how are you righteous before God? And to be righteous, it means to be, to be right, to conform to a standard, to in this case, the standard is God's law. We need to follow his law. But I want you to notice the addition of these two words, before God. How are you righteous before God? Because being righteous is not just about following rules, but it's about standing before God, about who we are in relation to who he is. Because the more we see who God is, the more we see his blinding holiness then that's when we see just how unrighteous we are. And Jesus illustrated this when he told a story about two men who went to pray. We read that story from Luke 18. The Pharisee, when he went to pray, he thought he was righteous. In fact, he thought that being righteous was about just following the rules. And he did a great job of that. In fact, he did even more than the Old Testament laws required. The Old Testament laws required fasting once a week, while the Pharisee fasted twice a week. He's gone above and beyond the rules. Surely this man can pray with confidence. All his boxes are ticked. He goes to church twice every Sunday. He never misses a Bible study. He always gives 10% of his earnings to charity. He's got it covered. Or so he thought. Because Jesus shows that being righteous is not just about following rules. The tax collector, on the other hand, he understood who he was in relation to who God is. 
Maybe you notice the, the Pharisee, how self-focused he was. I did this, I did that. He says, I, five times. But the tax collector prays with a different posture. He knows that he is unworthy to even come to God because he knows something of God's holiness. He knows something of how small he is compared to God. And so he comes in a posture of humility. He can't even look upwards. Just like Elijah when he prayed this morning, he bowed his face between his knees, comes in a posture of humility. How are you righteous before God? It doesn't mean how good are you at following the rules, but how can you stand in God's presence? Well, let's think about that for a moment. As we've seen in our morning series on Elijah, the glory of God as he was revealed on Mount Carmel, as he came in fire and consumed the sacrifice. And maybe you remember what happened to the people, what they did after that. They fell on their faces and they worshipped the Lord, he is God. They were terrified of God's holiness. Another example is the, the prophet Isaiah. He saw the Lord lifted up high and lofty on a loft on his throne. And in his vision, Isaiah saw angels around God's throne. And even the angels couldn't see God's glory. With two wings, they covered their face. And with two wings, they covered their feet. That's how glorious God is. Even the angels were unworthy to stand in God's presence like Moses when he was at the burning bush. You remember he had to move his sandals. He was standing on holy ground. And these angels that Isaiah saw before God's throne, they were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. That was the song they were singing. You remember Isaiah's reaction. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Isaiah saw God's glory, and he knew his sin. He saw the splendor of God, and, and he knew that his own sin was incompatible with such glory. He couldn't stand in God's presence, because God is holy. Sin and God don't mix. A similar thing happened to Peter. And boys and girls, maybe you remember the miracle when Peter and his friends were fishing all night and they didn't catch a single fish. And then the next morning they see Jesus and then Jesus says to them, just cast out again. And then they caught so many fish that, that their nets started breaking. It's an amazing miracle, isn't it? And then in response to that, Luke 5, 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at, Peter's, at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. Peter was blown away by Jesus' power, and he knew that his sin was incompatible. Like Isaiah in the throne room of God, Peter knew that sin and God do not mix. So how are you righteous before God? That is, how can you approach His, the most holy, the sinless, the glorious king. How can he look at you, he whose eyes are too pure to look on evil? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not one. In chapter 3, verse 9 to 12, he shows that all of humans are in the same boat. Sin is universal. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, if you're born in the church or outside the church. There is no one who does good, not one. So Paul is writing to the Jews in Rome, 
and he quotes from the Old Testament to show that the message of the Bible is the same from start to finish, and to show that Jews are not better than others. In verse 12 to 14, he singles out the sins of speech, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth. Well, our words betray our hearts, don't they? As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our speech, think about your speech, it reveals our sinful hearts, doesn't it? So how do you stand before God? Verse 19, the law shows us our sins so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. You see, when we stand before God, when He judges us according to His perfect standard, when we enter His holy and sinless presence, we have no words of defense. We have nothing. We're guilty. Or to press this even further, the catechism gives us three categories of, to show us our sin. Although my conscience accuses me, says the catechism. So I want to ask you this afternoon, does your conscience accuse you? Do you feel the weight of your sin, the hopelessness of your condition? Is sin serious to you? Because whether or not your conscience accuses you or not, this is the truth about us. This is what God's Word teaches us about who we really are without God. The first thing it says, our sins are omission, that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments. King David could identify with this. In Psalm 32, David writes about how much his conscience plagued him. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David was burdened by his conscience because of a sin that he'd committed, a sin in his life, because this sin meant that things were not right between him and God. Maybe your conscience pokes a finger at you too. Remember the hurtful words that you spoke. Remember what you were thinking about that person. Well, that's our sins of commission. The second are our sins of omission, that I have never kept any of God's commandments, that I haven't used opportunities to speak words of love, that I haven't read my Bible or prayed faithfully, that I haven't been witnessing about Jesus to my neighbor. The sins of omission. And the third is our unholy nature, that I'm still inclined to all evil. We're all capable of terrible sin, a pastor once wrote, I am very, very afraid of myself. He wrote this because he knew his unholy nature. He knew his pride and he knew how destructive that that could be. Well, this is how the Bible diagnoses us. Romans 3.23, Paul concludes, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How are you righteous before God? Not by myself. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, says Isaiah. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, says Peter. I am drowned in my unrighteousness. There is no way that I can come into God's presence. I'd like to finish this point with a quote from John Stott. He says, When we have glimpsed the blinding glory of the holiness of God, when we have been so convicted by our sin, by the Holy Spirit, that we tremble before God and acknowledge what we are, namely, hell-deserving sinners. Only then does the necessity of the cross become so obvious that we appear astonished that we never saw it before. 
In other words, when we see just how much we need righteousness, then we become more and more astonished at the immensity of the gift that God has given to us. Because that's not the end of the story. We read these beautiful words, yet God. The Catechism continues with those sweet words, yet God, and here we come to the hope of the gospel because we have no hope by ourselves. There's no way we can stand before God's blinding glory. Yet God, we're hell-deserving sinners, yet God. The tax collector says Jesus, the man who humbled himself before God, who knew his unworthiness. Jesus says that this man went home justified. That is, he went home right with God. He was accepted by God. How does this happen? Well, this is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus is our righteousness before God. Romans 3.21 Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. This is how simple it is, friends, that Jesus is our righteousness before God. And because he has died for us, God sees us as righteous The Catechism explains the gift of Christ's righteousness into three categories, and three categories which actually correspond to the three categories it's mentioned of our sin. God imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Well, first, Christ is the satisfaction for our sins. And basically, this means that in Christ, God has satisfied his anger against our sin. He's no longer angry at our sin because he has poured out his wrath against our sin. Romans 3.25 says that God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. That's a big statement. Let's break it down. Because God is angry at our sin, he will punish it. We've seen that God and sin do not mix. He is holy, and so he's going to punish sin. God's anger needs to be appeased. It needs to be propitiated. And Romans 3.25 says that Jesus is this propitiation, that he has taken all of God's anger on himself. He has satisfied that requirement. He's done it by his blood. It happened on the cross when Jesus died. There, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for me. That's why he's called the propitiation. He has removed the punishment. He is God's anger. He is the satisfaction for our sins. Note one more thing about Romans 3.25. It says that God is the one who set forth Jesus to be our propitiation. So this is the initiative, we could say, of the Father. You see, on the cross, it's not Father versus Son. No, it's not God the Father angry at God the Son, but their wills are completely united. Father and Son are 100% on the same page. God is showing his love by setting forth his son, by presenting his own son, whom he loved, to be this sacrifice. In other words, God satisfies himself. Father and son completely united. Now, it's a mystery, isn't it? But as one author wrote, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. 
In this amazing way, Christ is the satisfaction for our sins. He satisfies God's anger. Well, second, Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus is our righteousness before God. So when God looks at you, brothers and sisters, he sees his son. He sees the perfect obedience of Jesus. So boys and girls, do you know what this means? This means that when God looks at you, instead of seeing the fight that you had with your siblings last week or some other time, he sees Jesus who always perfectly loved his siblings. And friends, instead of our lack of trust, God sees the perfect trust of his own son, the perfect trust that Jesus displayed to his father even as he walked on that road to Golgotha. Instead of your unwillingness to come to God when when you're tired, he sees Jesus who worked late into the night and, and got up early in the dawn to commune with him. Instead of seeing the frustration we might have with our children, he looks at us and sees the perfect patience that our Lord had with his disciples. Christ is our righteousness. And third, God imputes to us the holiness of Christ. Christ was 100% holy. He was without a stain. He never tempted by an impure thought. He never had mixed motives. He was never selfish. Holy through and through. Not a single stain of sin. The Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb, never defiled. No trace of sin. And this is ours in Christ. This is how God sees you if you believe in Him. He gives to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And that's what God sees when he looks at you. And so he allows us to come into his presence. Your guilt and shame is gone. His justice has been satisfied. He sees you as righteous and holy. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. It's a wonderful gift of God's grace, isn't it? Romans 3.24, we're justified freely by his grace. It's a gift, and what an astonishing gift this is. We've done nothing to deserve it. It simply reflects the amazing love of God. This is the heart of the gospel. No wonder John Calvin says that this is the main hinge on which religion turns. If we think about Isaiah in the throne room of God, the Isaiah, the same man who cried out, woe is me, for I'm lost. Remember what happened after that? Isaiah writes, then one of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. So the angel took a coal from the altar, which represented atonement, sacrifice, representing the propitiation of his sin, the appeasing of God's wrath, and he applied it to his lips. Isaiah is purified so he can approach God in God's holiness. This is what being righteous before God means. Our relationship with God is restored. We're righteous before him. We can stand before him in all of his glory and holiness. Also, um, the Apostle John in Revelation 1, 
when he saw Jesus, Jesus in all his glory in Revelation 1, it's, a, it's an amazing chapter, John's response was to fall at his feet and like a dead man because of how glorious Jesus is. But you know what Jesus said to him? He said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to look at my glory because I am your righteousness. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the gift of Christ's righteousness. When God looks at you, he sees his son. I can stand before God because as the catechism said, God gives me this gift so that it's as if I have never sinned, never committed any sin, never had any sin, and as if I myself have accomplished all the obedience Christ has rendered for me. I was drowned in my unrighteousness, but now I am rescued in Christ's righteousness. Well, let's see in our third point how we receive this gift. Because answer 60 begins and ends with faith. We're righteous only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And at the end of the question answer, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. So this is also a strong emphasis in Romans 3 and chapter 4. Romans 3.22 says that we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Dear friends, you just need to believe it. We've seen that faith is holding on to Christ as an anchor. But if you don't hold on to an anchor, if the anchor is not connected to the boat, then it doesn't you no good at all. But faith says, yes, God, I believe that I am drowned in my unrighteousness. I believe that I am completely unworthy to stand before you. But I believe that Jesus has died to satisfy my unrighteousness. I believe that he has lived a perfect life for me. I believe that Christ is my righteousness. In Romans 4, Paul gives the example of Abraham. Abraham was a hero for the Jews. He was their role model. They looked up to him. But Paul says that even Abraham was not justified by what he did, his works, but he was justified by faith, by believing. Faith is the instrument by which Abraham was saved. And so you need to believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no other way that you can be righteous before God. No other way that you can stand in God's presence. Do you believe this? Well, second, faith itself has no saving value. Faith is the instrument, it's the means by which we receive God's gift. It's just like the hand of the beggar is needed to receive the gift of food, and yet the beggar's hand itself cannot take away his hunger. In a similar way, the hand of our faith, it cannot save us unless the gift of Christ's righteousness is placed in it. Faith doesn't save us because it has value in itself, but because it connects us to our Savior. The rope of the anchor does not save us, but the rope needs to be connected to the anchor. And so, brothers and sisters, as we wrap up this mini-series on the Apostles' Creed, this is where it leaves us. What does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God, an heir to life everlasting. What an amazing confession. What a beautiful truth. What was broken between us and God is now fixed. What prevented us from beholding His glory is gone. Now we can stand before God. We are right with Him. 
And one day we will endure, enjoy a, perfectly, a perfect relationship that will never be tarnished. We will be able to bask in God's glory, in His presence. And so let's keep holding on to that anchor, firm and secure. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. In Christ I am not accused, but I am free. And so, my friend, I urge you, together with me, to lift your eyes to Calvary. This, my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It will never be removed. Amen.